If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2, and before I get into the sermon uh, proper this, this morning, I do need to make a correction for something that I said last week. Last week, I was talking about uh, Jesus Christ and what he accomplished when he came to the earth. And I talked about how when he came as a human, he was truly human in everything that that means, yet without sin. Right? Jesus Christ was perfect. He never sinned, but he was fully human. He experienced hunger and thirst, etc. And in that conversation, I, I took a break away from the point to kind of speculate upon the life of Christ to a degree, and suggesting that he may have gotten cuts or bruises as he grew up. And furthermore, I suggested the possibility that he may have even broken a bone. And that is something that I need to correct, because while that might seem like harmless speculation, the Old Testament actually clearly says that there would be no bone broken in Jesus Christ. And that is actually very important. The importance of that is because in the Old Testament, when sacrifices were to be brought to the altar, the lamb that would be brought, it had to be an unblemished lamb. And if that lamb had suffered a broken bone, it would not be considered a spotless, unblemished lamb. And so that lamb could not have been a sacrifice acceptable before God if that lamb had a broken bone. And so Jesus Christ, if he is the perfect lamb of God, if he is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, it actually is an important point that Jesus Christ never would have broken a bone. So I just needed to make that, uh, that correction, that clarification from last week. It's, it, is, it is a significant point. That I, I don't want to make light of it. I don't want to, to gloss over that. I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but I did, and I wanted to make, make that correction. Uh, it was significant in the gospel, uh, in, as the gospel writers, they were noting that when Jesus Christ was hung on the cross, that as the Passover was, or the, the, the Sabbath was approaching, the Jews were like, well, we've got to get these people down from the cross because we can't be working on the Sabbath. And so the soldiers broke the bones of the legs of the two thieves that were hanging with Jesus Christ. But when they came to Jesus, they did not break his bones because he was already dead. And that was specifically to fulfill that Old Testament prophecy that no bone of his would be broken. So I just want to make that clarification that forgive me for that. And, and I, I just actually want to use this as an opportunity to even highlight something about as, as we begin to explore Scripture, as we, we try to teach from Scripture, there is certain, some dangers that can be present in what might seem like innocent speculation and going beyond what is given to us in the text. We can inadvertently speak that which is false and not be aware of it until a later time. And, and in the moment when I did that, that's, that's exactly what happened. I, I strayed away from my notes as I was just going on in a little bit moment of, of a, a speculation, expanding upon a point when that speculation simply was not necessary. And so I unwittingly contradicted what the scriptures actually taught. So forgive me for that. I shall stick closer to my notes this morning. <laughs> As we are in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to continue to gaze upon Jesus Christ and the humility that he displayed. You know, we live in an interesting time in history when if someone gains enough followers on social media, 
they could credibly add the title to their resume of influencer. This is a word that is, is pretty novel to our time and day. Like, if you go back a certain number of years, the idea of the word influencer, well, what is an influencer? It would have been nonsensical. In fact, even as I typed the word influencer into my notes, my spell checker didn't even recognize that it was a word. Like, what is this? What is influencer? You have a, you have a spelling error here. But these individuals, some of them might be celebrities of some kind, or maybe they've gained some notoriety through some accomplishment, but it seems to me that the the majority of these who claim to be influencers, the vast majority of them have actually accomplished nothing of significance in their lives other than somehow gaining this level of notoriety and following on social media. That is their only claim to fame, that they have a certain number of followers on Instagram or TikTok or whatever platform that they may be on. But marketers like these influencers. They, they like that they exist because they can sell their product through these influencers. They can pay these individuals to, to place their product in their videos, their tweets, or their pictures, whatever posts that they might have, in order to influence their followers to purchase the product. And so we have an increasing number of of uh, children in our society right now that as they watch these videos, they follow these accounts, they are producing amateur content of their own. And it's not uncommon for many young people to say, you know what, I want to be an influencer. In fact, I've had conversations with, these, with some of these young people that say, I want to be a YouTuber when I grow up. Like that is their, their aspirational goal. I want to be a YouTuber. And YouTuber, that's, that's another word that my spell checker did not like. It didn't understand this concept of what a viral YouTuber was or a viral TikTok star. But not all of us aspire to be that, right? We, we haven't all aspired to be a YouTuber or someone who would have this following on social media. But we do all know what it feels like when people listen to us, when people take their suggestions and our advice When people do what we want them to do or what we think is right for them to do, we like that because it feels good. It feels good when people are listening to us. We like to have that influence. And our culture values influence. Our culture values that influence. When you speak and someone listens, that is considered valuable in our culture today. And and the more influence you have, the more important or more significant you must be because, hey, you have influence. So your greatness might be determined in some people's view by the amount of influence that you might have over those around you. But that causes us to ask the question, is this how we determine greatness from a biblical perspective? course, if we were to examine the pages of Scripture, we would find the answer to that as no. No, greatness is not determined by influence or power or fame or fortune. But rather, Jesus presents to us a different picture of true greatness. Jesus shows us that to be truly great is to be marked by a life of humility When the disciples were arguing amongst themselves which of them was the greatest, sometimes I just picture what what that conversation even have looked like, arguing about who is the greatest amongst themselves. 
Well, Jesus said to his disciples in that moment, if, anyone would, if any of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Last of all and servant of all. Not, not aspiring to be great, but seeking to be the servant. Humility. This is a mentality that we do not naturally embrace. That we are not naturally drawn towards the trait of humility, unless it's a, a false humility for the sake of gaining other notoriety that happens. But we need the grace of Christ to instruct us and to teach us in this discipline of humility, of being humble before God. You know, as we've been working through this book of Philippians, we've, we've seen an argument unfold from the Apostle Paul. He's writing to a suffering church as he himself is in prison. This church is suffering persecution themselves. And at the end of chapter 1, he, he calls them to persevere. He calls them to stand fast, to continue on in the faith. And so we find these words as, as we come to the end of, of chapter 1. I'm still in Mark, so I've got to flip over there myself. But he says to them in chapter 1, verse 27, only, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Well, what does that look like? He, he expands, so that I, whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything. Paul desires that they stand firm, that they persevere, that even though there is difficulty coming against them, though they are facing hardship, they stand side by side, united in the faith, persevering. And so we see there's a connection between these ideas of, of standing firm and, and being united together. Because the reality is that we are in a spiritual battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need each other. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we are to persevere, if we are to continue on in the faith, if we are to live lives of holiness and obedience before the Lord, if we are not to cave to the pressures that come against us from the world, we need one another. We cannot, we cannot afford to be eating our own alive. If we, cannot live, if we cannot learn to live in harmony, even when we do have some disagreements, we will not fare well in our battle that rages on. So we must be unified. But in order to be unified, we see Paul teach us that we need to exercise humility that leads us to showing deference to others and serving them. And this is what Paul expresses we came into chapter 2. Complete my joy, he says in chapter 2, verse 2, by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord of one mind. There's that unity that is expressed there once again. But then he goes on to say, in order for that unity to be developed, there needs to be humility. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, pursuing things for our own advantage, but rather, on the contrary, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we're to be united, we need to be humble. 
Because it is only when we are humble that we can show deference to others, that even when we might have slight disagreements on some point or another, and we clarified that in previous weeks about how we don't compromise on biblical truth, but there are times where we have disagreements, and we can show deference to one another. We don't have to always get our own way, but we can be humble in the midst of that. And, And that is what Paul calls us to. Well, this week we're going to begin to unpack more fully verses 5 through 11. And we we began to go through this last week. Again, we had that overview of that paragraph last week. I mentioned that there's just simply too much goodness here for us to only spend one week looking at that. And so as we move through things in the next few weeks, we're going to look more closely and examining and, and unpacking and mining the depths of the beauty and the goodness of what is contained in these verses. And so we're going to rewind and go back here to verse 5 and begin unpacking with the Apostle Paul, taking a closer look at everything that God has, has packed into these verses for us. We're going to see Christ's humility as our example. Christ is the perfect example of someone of not abusing their own position, but using it in humility to value and serve others. The perfect example of someone not abusing their own position, but using it in humility to value and serve others. So first, let's see Christ as our example. Philippians 2.5 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this is, this is kind of the bridge verse that bridges the, the previous paragraph with the paragraph that is about to follow. Paul has said that, that we need to be living lives in unity with one another, in humility. And he's going to transition into the example of Jesus Christ. And this verse is the, is the bridge that gets us there. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The, If we were to translate it literally, we could say, think this way among yourselves. And it's a command that this is how you ought to be thinking. This is your attitude. This is what your mindset ought to be. This is your outlook on life. It's not just a momentary thought that comes into our minds, but something that dominates our whole mind frame. Now, I do have to say that there is is some debate about how we are to understand this verse and this phrase, and that debate is even reflected within our different translations. I have the ESV, which reads, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And if that is an accurate translation, then the idea is that through being united to Christ by faith, you already have the capability to have the mind of Christ. And to display the humility that he displayed. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that we have the mind of Christ. And there are other passages that point to the reality of our union with Christ so as to partake in the benefits of his righteousness. However, one of the problems with this translation is that it does make us pause and ask the question, okay, if we already have this mindset, why is it that Paul needs to instruct us to have the mindset that we already have. If this mindset is ours in Christ, why do we need to have this instruction? 
But if you have just about any other translation other than the ESV, you will have something that sounds much more closer to the NASB, the New American Standard, which reads this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so with that translation, the idea is more of following after the example of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is, is our pattern and we are to walk in that example. And we touched upon this a little bit last week and all the various passages that call us to follow after the example of Jesus Christ. We are called to imitate Jesus Christ. In fact, that is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. When Jesus Christ said, go into the world and make disciples, well, what is a disciple? What is that? Well, it's a follower. It's a learner. It's an initiate, a, 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 someone who is being instructed by the master. They're following after him, and we are called to follow and imitate Jesus Christ. Now, one of the difficulties that might be raised with this translation is that Paul seems to be calling us to an impossible task. How are we to do this? Like, this is, this is Jesus Christ. He displayed this perfect humility. How can we do that? How can we have the same humility that Christ had when he died on the cross? Well, to answer that, I would say that Paul is not asking us to save the world in our own death, right? That's not what he is calling us to do. Like, we can't do that. But rather, we can display the same mindset that led Jesus to perform that action. We can't save the world, but we can refrain from using our own position or platform to serve ourselves selfishly, and we can use that to serve others. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. And so for that reason, I do prefer that, that second approach and that the translation that would be reflected in the New American Standard or the New King James, the King James, a variety of other translations that, that translate it as, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that we are to be reflecting the example of Jesus Christ. But either way, no matter, no matter how you look at it, Paul does want us to imitate Jesus in our mindsets. Now, this is a, something that we are to emulate in our lives, that we are to imitate Jesus Christ. As we think about that, that concept of imitating Christ, you know, just this last week, I was, I was at our local dojo for a, a Taekwondo class, and I was there, and there's a, there's a student in that class who is going to be testing for her black belt in Taekwondo this next month. A lot of work that goes into that. And so she was going through the, some particular forms and some moves as she was preparing for that. And there, she, was, she was having some difficulties with a few of the techniques. And so the grandmaster, he got out onto the floor himself. And he was trying to help her learn those techniques and, and go through that. And he was saying, okay, no, no, watch me as I do this. And he was going through and he was doing the techniques. He says, okay, now you do it with me. And so she was going through, and they were doing it in unison together, practicing those techniques. And then he would step back and say, okay, now you do it on your own. Now you do these techniques. And then she would go through, and she was learning and gaining the skill and the competency in those things as she was going through. And after a few tries, she got it. She was able to learn those, and she was performing the techniques and the moves with accuracy. What was happening there? Well, the instructor was not just telling her, hey, you need to do this. 
Right? He wasn't just, just giving instructions and, and pointing and saying, okay, now do it, now do it, now do it. Now the instructor was taking the time to show her what it looked like. To show her, okay, this is how you do this. This is what needs to be done. This is how you prepare yourself for that move, and this is how you execute it. Now you do it. Just like you saw me do it, now you do it too. So there was the example that was given. He was coaching her until she was able to imitate the moves and the techniques with perfection. And in a similar way, we are called to imitate Christ. But we don't have a Savior who simply said, okay, now you just go do this, go do this, without ever having done it himself. No, he says, I will show you how to do this. I will show you what this looks like practically in action. And so that is what Paul gives us. The example of Jesus Christ leading by example. And I've mentioned this already, that this can feel like an impossible task. Like how can we emulate Christ and what he did on the cross? But again, we aren't called to emulate this singular task. It's the mindsets and the mentality that we are called to emulate and to imitate how we use our positions to serve others. So how are we to imitate Christ? Well, as we move through this, we're not going to be able to move through all of these things today because there's just simply too much to unpack again. But we're going to see Christ's humility on display and how that actually corresponds to the commands that Paul has already given in verses 2 through 4. And so we're going to see principles of humility. There's going to be three principles of humility. And I think we're probably only going to get through one of those principles today. And the next two we'll get to in future weeks. And usually, I'm just going to tell you, usually I don't prefer to move this slowly through a text. However, when there's just so much here, and when these texts have been so abused over the years by different individuals, we do have to linger. And we do have to unpack, and we do have to break things apart and say, okay, these texts have been abused by heretics. Well, let's understand what's going on here and how we can be equipped from God's Word to accurately understand what is being communicated. So we do have to take the time with this, and so we're going to do so. But as we work through this, we are going to see the principles of humility on display. And the first principle that we see is that humility is not selfish. Humility is not selfish. So let's look at the example of Christ, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, "...to have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ." Verse 6, "...who," again, talking about Jesus Christ, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." I hinted at last week again about the complexity of just this one verse alone. And it is a bit of a complicated verse and again, it has led to many abuses because of its complex nature, but, but it is not beyond discerning, and it is not beyond understanding the meaning of what Paul intended to communicate, and it is actually fantastically beautiful. What is packed into here is marvelous. The way that this, this pa- paragraph unfolds has led many scholars to say that this text was actually 
one of the early hymns of the church. That this would have been sung by the early church as they would gather together and sing praise to God. There is, there is a parallelism and there is a, a flow and a meter that flows in the original language that, that is present here that has led them to think, you know, this, this is formulated into, it's like a hymn as it unfolds. And so we see this, it's the, the beauty that is present here. We have the humility of Christ on display. We see that humility is not selfish. There are three phrases here that I want to examine closely. The first phrase is that, though he was in the form of God. Who, though he was in the form of God. Now there is, there is some debate about what it means for Christ to be in the form of God. I mean, it's important to understand that word, that word form, correctly. We could ask the question, okay, if he's in the form of God, wouldn't that mean that he was in reality not God, but merely appearing to be so on the surface? That is a question that needs to be addressed. In fact, if you were to have a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness about this very text, that is what they would say. They would say, no, he's not actually God, just merely in the form of God. He's so great and so cool that he just looks like he's God, but he's not actually God. God. Is that what this text communicates? Is that what the word form means? They would argue that he might be like, someone might be like a lump of Plato fashioned into the form of a person, that Plato is not actually a person themselves, it's actually Plato, but it's in the form of a person. But that misses Paul's point. It misses his point entirely. See, Paul is urging the Philippians, again, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the instruction that we saw back in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is to say, don't seek positions of authority, of influence, or power in order to further your own selfish agenda. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't aspire to things for your own selfish agenda purposes. In the culture, the, there, was a, there was constant social strife between the different classes that were present in those days. In the Roman culture of that time, this was a, a Roman colony. It was very common that those of nobility would be viewing themselves as more significant, and there was, there was constant attempts to grain to gain greater social status, to gain greater social influence through whatever means that they could be found to accomplish that. And so they would try to further themselves, to advantage themselves socially in one way or another. And Paul says, no, do not do that. Do not seek to leverage your social position or to try to advantage yourself for your own selfish reasons, to enrich yourself, to, to advance your own selfish purposes. Don't seek to gain social capital for selfish reasons. And so here Paul gives us the corresponding example of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was one who had, we could say, the social capital, so to speak, of being God. Right? Jesus Christ is in the form of God. How do we know that He was God? Well, He existed in the form of God. 
He was clothed in majesty and glory and in splendor. And so on the face of it, we could see that he's clearly, if we could behold Jesus Christ in his glory, the only conclusion that we could come to is that was God. That is God. In those days, at the time that this was written, one of the ways that you would know socially who someone was and their social class was how they were dressed and how they appeared. Right? You, could, you could know if someone was of nobility or a prince of some na- nature by simply viewing the clothes that they were wearing as they would walk the street. And Paul says that Jesus Christ was clothed in that which if we could see him, we would instantly be aware of the reality that he is God. That he is God. He was clothed in glory and majesty and beauty. Things that only fitting for God himself. No one is clothed as Christ is clothed and not be deity. So Jesus Christ is God. But to the point, though he had, again, I'm using this, this phrase of social capital. It's, it's kind of crude language for what is actually occurring right here in this text. But he had the position Right? He had the position of divinity, of glory, of power, of majesty. That's who Jesus Christ is and was. And yet, he did not use that position selfishly. He did not use it selfishly, which brings us to our second phrase. Though he existed in the form of God, though he had the position, though he had the majesty, the glory, the beauty, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, we have another phrase that is debated and can be abused. I've got the ESV again that says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Christian Standard Bible says that he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. The New King James says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And the NIV says that he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So how are we to understand this? We have these different translations that are kind of approaching things from from slightly different angles. Well, no matter how we approach it, no matter what the precise translation is, the point remains the same. That Jesus Christ, though he was clothed with divine majesty because he is in reality God the Son, even so, he did not take advantage of that position for selfish purposes. So with the ESV and with the NESB, they render it, they did not count equality with God, which that's what he was. He was equal with God in, in every single way. There was nothing that would made him separate or less than God or, or less glorious or less, less majestic than God. He is fully equal with God, equal in power, equal in glory, equal in divinity. That is who he is. But though he had that equality with God, it was not something to be grasped, something to be held tight to, to be clung to selfishly. So I rather like the NIV and the the Christian Standard Bible here that says it wasn't something to be exploited or used for his own advantage. It wasn't grasping and said, no, this is mine and I'm going to use it for me. But rather, 
in humility, he was willing to enter into the world, taking on human flesh. Jesus wasn't selfish. Even though he was the king of kings, had that position of lord of lords, he did not use his position selfishly. By way of negative example of something not to do, back in college I participated in student government. I was class president for three of the four years in college, and one year that I wasn't class president, I was student body president of the whole assembly. And that sounds impressive, like, oh wow, okay, student body president. It might sound impressive until you consider the heart motives of what was at play there. I was not really interested in serving the student body. I did serve the student body, but I did so out of obligation, but it wasn't from my heart. See, I ran for the office because I thought it would gain me something amongst the student body. I thought it would gain me influence. I thought it would gain me respect on campus. I thought it would pad my resume in years to come when I could put out on my resume, hey, I was the student body president. Hey, look at me. I thought, it was that, I thought that's what it was for. Well, the one year that I skipped being a class president and I ran for the student body president, I even did that for selfish reasons. I did so strategically and selfishly because the junior class president had particular responsibilities that I was very interested in avoiding. And the only way out and not look like a coward was to run for the next position up. And so that's what I did. I ran for the student body president's in order to avoid the responsibilities of the junior class president. And then when the senior year came back around, I was very happy to slide back into the senior class president position. Well, that all reflects using positions of influence for selfish reasons. I wasn't doing that with a heart of a servant. I wasn't doing it for the purpose of trying to better the student body but I had my own selfish gain at heart. And so I strategically operated in order to to further my own selfish purposes. And we're all tempted to do this in different ways. Obviously, it's not going to look like that for everybody. But it's going to look differently in our churches. We might position ourselves to try to gain influence over different decisions that might try to be made. At work, different political matters at work within, I don't mean national political things, but just, you know, the politics of work. You know, we all know what that looks like. We try to position ourselves in different ways. Even within our own families and our extended families, we can see these sorts of things play out. Paul says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And then he shows us the picture of Jesus Christ the perfect example, who refused to use his position for his own selfish purposes, but rather used it to serve others. He refused to use his position selfishly. But on the contrary, he did something else, and that takes us into verse 7. And the first, the first clause there in verse 7, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself. The word but there, it represents a a strong, emphatic contrast between what had just come. 
He didn't use his own position to, as something to be used for his own advantage, something to be grasped and held tightly to. But on the contrary, rather, he emptied himself. But now we have another difficult thing to wrestle through and try to reckon with. When we talk about Christ emptying himself, the question then becomes, okay, of what did he empty himself? Of what was he emptied? And different people have suggested different things, and we want to be careful about this, that we don't slide into heresy. Some say he emptied himself of his divinity, that when Jesus Christ was on earth, he was not divine. Of course, that is heresy and not supported by the text. We've already established that the text clearly supports that Jesus Christ was God. He is God, fully equal with him in every way. Jesus Christ did not empty himself of his divinity. Some say, okay, maybe he didn't give up his divinity, but he did give up his divine attributes. So even though he was still God, he did not possess the power of God while he was on earth, but rather lived out life as strictly and only a man. This heresy has a name. It's called the canonic heresy. And there are some groups that, that teach this and consider it a rather important peg of their theology because they teach that when Jesus Christ was on earth, he lived fully as a man and merely as a man, that he did not live his earthly life in, with any divine features whatsoever. And so as a result, his life shows us of what man is designed to be, that he is the perfect model of a perfect man And thus all the amazing things that Jesus did were done merely as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit, but not as a divine being. And again, this is a a critical peg for their theology because the argument goes, if Christ healed, if Christ cast out demons, if Christ walked on water and even raised people from the dead merely as a man then that means I can do those things as well. That's the theology. That's the, what is known as a canonic heresy, that, that Jesus Christ emptied himself of his divine attributes, and, and because he did so, that I can do the same things that Jesus did as well. You see the connection. But this approach violates so many clear teachings from Scripture that clearly demonstrate that Jesus could do the things that he did precisely because he was divine. Right, that's the, Mark chapter 2 bears out very clearly that Jesus Christ was God in human flesh, and we were to take the, the things that he did, the marvelous things that he did, as evidence that he is truly divine. That he was not merely a man. Yes, he was truly a man, but not merely a man. That Jesus Christ was divine, that he was God in human flesh, and he did not empty himself of his attributes. He still possessed omniscience, he still possessed omnipotence, etc. We could go down the line and many passages of Scripture that we could turn to to demonstrate that. So again, such assertions cannot be substantiated from the text of Scripture. So if this is not what it means... What does it mean? How are we to understand this phrase that he emptied himself? First, there are some that that say that, you know, we we even get off on the wrong foot when we ask the question, what was he emptying himself? 
The context speaks of Jesus not abusing his, his position or his social capital, so to speak, for his own advantage, but rather emptying himself. So the idea is that he is lowering his position, or we could say making himself nothing. In fact, there are some translations that render it that way. The, the NIV, the King James, the New King James all translate this phrase as, he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself of reputation, of prestige, so to speak. And so the idea is that this doesn't change the nature of who Christ is. It doesn't, ta- it doesn't change his very being, but rather speaks of him voluntarily putting himself to the lowest position on the totem pole, so to speak. Lowering himself down in an act of humility. And if we were to go on in verse 7, we would see that that was by taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, taking on humanity. So Jesus Christ did not abuse his position, but rather chose to take on voluntarily the lowest position, emptying himself making himself of no reputation and coming in the likeness of men, voluntarily lowering himself to the lowest position on the totem pole. Humility is not selfish. Again, this corresponds back to verse 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And Jesus shows us what that looks like. Not so that we can look at that and say, I can never live up to that, right? That's our natural response. We see what Christ did, like, I I can't live up to that. (laughs) But that's not the point. Again, we don't have to live up to that. We don't have to live up to the act that that Christ emptying himself and be taking on that form of a servant. Divinity in human flesh. That's not what we're called to do. But we are being called to display humility and not using our position, whatever that position might be. We might think that we may not have much of a position, but, but we do have some position, whatever that position is. Not using that for my own selfish reasons, but in humility, serving others. Because the reality is that we are tempted to use our position selfishly. As parents... We're tempted when our children are disobedient, when they misbehave. We're tempted to lose our temper with our children. And we can use the fact that we are bigger and stronger to force our children into submission because they're irritating me and they just need to, come on, just get into shape, rather than on helping them learn obedience because of what Christ instructs for us. That's our natural temptation. I know it is for me, at least. <laughs> I can use that position selfishly. We might be tempted to use our social capital at work to manipulate others for our own selfish reasons. Gossip, talking behind other people's backs, can be an expression of that selfishness. It's selfish. As a pastor of this church, I might be tempted to use my position of spiritual authority to lead the church in a particular direction that suits me rather than my, what be better 
for the overall health of the church. So I have to be on guard against that, even within my own heart. Lord willing, someday we will have a plurality of elders here. By God's grace, that will be something that God brings along. And so the future elders of this church might be tempted to use their position of authority for selfish reasons, to bring about their own selfish purposes, to push for their own way. And so we have to be on guard against these things. And the antidote to such thinking is a life of humility. Humility is not selfish. So instead of asking how a position helps me, I will ask how my position helps others. Instead of saying, how do I be successful, I ask, how can I make others successful? Because humility is not selfish. To close, I just share this story of a story I read this week of a, a wealthy donor who visited a seminary. And he was seeking to be there. The seminary was struggling a little bit financially, and so he was coming along to see if maybe if he liked what he saw, that perhaps he could donate to the school. As he arrived on campus, there was, he stepped in the foyer. There was an old man, white hair, wearing the you know, stained clothes of paint as he was painting the walls. And he asked the man, sir, where can I find the president of this institution? He said, sir, you can find him in such and such an office, and he will be there at noon. You can find him there at noon. The gentleman thanked him and waited for the appointed time when he would come at noon. And he came. There at, at noon, he came to the office, and as he entered, he was surprised to discover the same man who was painting the walls inside the office behind the desk, serving as the president of the institution. A man who, by his position, many would have looked at that and said, Why are you painting the walls? You're the president. Don't you have more important things to do? Let other people that, that are underneath you, let them do that work. But he did not consider himself to be above those tasks, but was willing to serve and was willing to do whatever needed to be done. An example of that humility that we are to display. Humility is not selfish. Next week, by God's grace, we will continue to learn more of the principles of of what humility looks like as we continue to study the, the example of Jesus Christ. But as we just consider this, this example, you know, where we are going, as we continue to see the humility of Christ on display as he entered into this world, as he took on human flesh, as he died even a death on the cross. We need to reflect upon what he endured. We did that through the Lord's table today, and as we As we close with our closing song, we're going to do that once again. Reflecting on what was accomplished for us on that cross as, again, another example of the humility of Christ. That we might have that same mindset. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Christ. Lord, we can never hope to fully measure up to the example of Christ, but we can have this mindset. You're not calling us and asking us to set aside our position of authority as divine beings because we are not divine. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that. 
but you do call us to be willing to use our positions of privilege, whatever they might be, to serve others. Pray that you help us to be humble, that we would not be selfish, Lord. Humility is not selfish. And every time we do act selfishly, we are neglecting humility. And you pray that you would help us to be humble. Give us humility, Lord. We thank you again for Jesus Christ and him entering our world as a, dis- as a perfect display of humility. And because of what he did, we can walk in newness of life because it was finished upon the cross. So we rejoice as we sing our closing song today at what you did, Lord, and what Christ did on that cross. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.